Let's turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. We will read from verse 1 to verse 16. Verse 1. And when they drew near unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say anything unto you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king comes unto you, meek and sitting upon a donkey, and a colt the foal of a donkey. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these say? And Jesus said unto them, Yes. And have you never read, Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings you have perfected praise? Let's pray again. Father in heaven, Lord, this um, passage that we have just read is so, so deep and rich, Lord. And as we approach your word this morning, we pray that you would give us the understanding that we need to understand this passage. Help us to think about this the way that you want us to think about it. Help us to realize that the words that we read and the words of your Son and all the things that are about him that you've given to us are your message to us directly and that we're not hearing from men at all but we're actually hearing from you. Help us to realize that this morning. Give us ears, Lord. Lord, um, just tune our hearts, Lord, and our ears this morning to hear from you. We pray this for your praise and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have ever heard of the expression throwing down the gauntlet? Have you ever heard of that before? Is that just a Canadian thing? <laughs> yes? <laughs> Throwing down the gauntlet. Throwing down the gauntlet basically means that you're laying down a challenge. When someone throws down the gauntlet, they're challenging someone else. The gauntlet comes from the French word gant, G-A-N-T, and it actually means glove. 
In the Middle Ages, when a knight was to challenge another knight to a battle or to some sort of challenge to see who was the best of them, he would throw his glove on the ground, throwing down the gauntlet. And this eventually turned into throwing down the gauntlet. And when you throw down your glove or when you throw down the gauntlet, you're challenging someone to something. Maybe you've heard how that's evolved. You maybe remember back in the day, uh, or maybe you've watched a movie where someone pulls out a glove and slaps another person in the face and says, I challenge you to a duel, right? <clears throat> He's throwing down the gauntlet. I remember in Canada, in Fredericton one day, I went to a hockey game, something that we Canadians like to do. And uh, I remember at the hockey game, the game had not started. And what happens in a hockey game is the referee begins the game by dropping the puck in the center of the ice, it's called the face-off. And the game hadn't even started, but no sooner did the referee drop the puck and have the face-off for the first period that two guys on the opposite team threw off their gloves and started fighting. <laughs> in hockey, when you want to fight, you throw your gloves off. <laughs> you throw down the gaunt, the gaunt, the gauntlet. Giving a challenge. Now, brothers and sisters, this entire chapter, and not only this entire chapter, but this entire week that we're about to examine as we go on in Matthew, the last week of Jesus before his death, this is all about Jesus throwing down the gauntlet. This is all about Jesus publicly challenging the religious establishment. This is all about Jesus challenging Israel and challenging sinners basically to a duel, although it's not because he, he just wants to show he's better than you. He's challenging us to think. He's challenging us to look. He's challenging us to consider. He's challenging us to change. This whole week, in a sense, is a showdown. The conflict has been mounting from the very beginning, and now it's come to a head. And Jesus, as he's ready to make his ascent here, he comes into Jerusalem not as just one of many pilgrims incognito. Now there's tons of pilgrims because the Passover is about a week away and people are coming from all over the world. And there's multitudes everywhere. And, and the, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are actually opening up their homes and opening up their doors for the pilgrims. That's what would happen. When the, when the pilgrims would come, they would stay with the inhabitants of Jerusalem, there'd be so many people, they'd be camping around the city, they'd have to camp in neighboring cities, as we're going to see, that's exactly what Jesus did. He didn't actually stay in Jerusalem. He would go to Jerusalem during the day and head back to uh, Mary and Martha's house for, for the evening. And Jesus makes his ascent here. The Passover is the festival where the people of Israel celebrate the exodus out of Egypt. You can read the book of Exodus and you can read about the origin of this festival. And this is why all these people are coming together. So this is a, this is a, a powerful moment. The Exodus, of course, is, as Christians, we understand it's, a, it's all symbolic. And it's symbolic of what Jesus has done for us. And Jesus is here now about to celebrate Passover. Of course, little do people realize that Jesus himself is the Paschal Lamb that's about to be shed so that the people can be delivered, not merely from physical slavery, but from their sins. He's about to make his ascent to Jerusalem. Matthew has been 
drawing our attention to this for a long time. Jesus has been announcing, I'm about to go to Jerusalem. We're about to go to Jerusalem. And I'm going to die in Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed in Jerusalem. All this is going to happen in Jerusalem. And here he comes. Now, why is Jerusalem so important? How come Jesus couldn't have been the Paschal Lamb anywhere else? Why does Jesus say it must be that it is in Jerusalem? Couldn't he have died in somewhere in Galilee? Maybe in Capernaum? Why here, of all places? Obviously, nothing that God does is arbitrary. And God does things for a reason. And I want to just take a brief look at some verses in the Old Testament, so you might have to flip with me. See how nimble your fingers are this morning. Genesis chapter 22, verse 14. We're not going to obviously mention all the important verses. There's so many. Genesis 22, 14. Genesis 22 is the chapter in the Old Testament where Abraham is told to sacrifice his son Isaac. But he doesn't say just take him out to the back shed, right? Instead of using the whip, use the knife. That's not what God says to him, right? God says, you are to sacrifice your son Isaac in the place that I will show you. The place is very important. In fact, it's a three-day journey from where Abraham was. And Abraham goes on his three journey, lifts up his eyes, and sees the place. And there he goes to sacrifice his son Isaac. But of course, we know how the story goes. Look at verse 14. After the angel of the Lord stops Abraham and shows him the ram that's caught in the thicket, in verse 14, Abraham called the name of that place Yehovah-Yireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And what's very interesting is that this place, or what's called the mount of the Lord, is none other than Mount Zion, or Mount Moriah, where Jerusalem is built and is now established. Where Jesus himself is now ascending to be that sacrifice that the Lord provides. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 10. This is another very important chapter in the Old Testament. Moses, of course, in Deuteronomy is giving the second run through the law. That's why it's called Deuteronomy, Deuteronomos, second law. And as Moses is recapping the law, this is right before Moses is about to die and right before the people of Israel are about to go into the land. Moses has something to tell them. And Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 10, here's what Moses says. When you go over Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God gives you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies round about. Now, by the way, that didn't happen right away, right? Uh, Israel came into Canaan, they conquered, and they did not have rest for a long time. When you come in and when God gives you rest, notice who gives rest, from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safely, then something is going to happen. Right? Something is going to happen when that happens. Then there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. And there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice vows, which you vow unto the Lord. Now, do you remember when that was fulfilled? 
When did God give them rest? It's interesting in the Bible, there's an ex- in the Old Testament, there's, an, ex- there's a, an explicit moment when it says in the Old Testament, the Lord now had given rest to the people of Israel. And that is in, sec- in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when David gets it in his heart to build a house for the Lord in Jerusalem. And it literally starts the chapter, says, when the Lord had given rest to all the people of Israel through David, which is all, of course, symbolic of Christ. And so Jerusalem was to be the place here, it says, that God chose to cause his name to dwell. Notice that man didn't choose Jerusalem. The reason why Jerusalem is significant and the reason why Jesus went up to Jerusalem to to give the sacrifice isn't because God was just following what man had already chosen. But God himself had chosen that place for his name to dwell there and for sacrifices to be done there in that place. 2 Chronicles chapter 6. If we want to understand Jesus and these last days of his life, we need to understand the place where he is. 2 Chronicles chapter 6. Chronicles is after Kings. 2 Chronicles 6. And look at verse 5 and 6. This is Solomon speaking prophetically. In verse 5, Since the day that I brought forth my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city among all the tribes of Israel to build a house in, that my name might be there. Notice the connection between the name of the Lord and this particular place. Neither chose I any man to be a ruler over my people Israel, but I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there and have chosen David to be over my people Israel. Here again, God is the one who does the choosing. David didn't choose to be the king. Samuel went to Jesse's sons and chose David, right? And God chose Jerusalem above all the other places in Israel. Uh, Turn to the Psalms. We'll look at two Psalms and then we'll go back We'll look at two psalms, and then we'll have one more after that. Psalm 87. Psalm 87. And verse 2 and 3. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. Now, whenever you read Zion in the Bible, that is the synonymous with Jerusalem. So Zion and Jerusalem are the same thing. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of thee, O city of God. And think about that, it says here, Selah. Turn to 132, Psalm 132. And look at verse 13 and 14. Psalm 132, 13, 14. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for what? His habitation. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. Notice that no one is telling God what to do, right? It's important for us to listen to what God is doing and understand what he's doing. He's desired it for what? He's chosen it for what? That his name might be there forever. This is the place that he will dwell. This is where you find God. If you're wanting to find someone, you say, where do they live? You want to find God, where do you look? Where do you go? 
God says, Jerusalem is where you look. Jerusalem is the city on which God has placed his name forever. It is the city in which he is associated forever. One last scripture before we go back to Matthew. Isaiah 62. Isaiah 62. And actually, this chapter is connected with our chapter in Matthew, as you'll see. Isaiah 62. And this passage here is typical of all the prophets. The prophets talk like this. So this is sort of just a sampling. And I want you just, as as I read this, get the feel for what's being said. Where the passion of these prophets lie. Verse 1, for Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake will I not rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burns. And the Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings thy glory. And you shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, neither shall your land any more be termed desolate, but you shall be called Hephzibah, which means my delight, and thy land Beulah, married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I have set watchmen upon your walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day nor night. You that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence and give him no rest till he establish and till he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength, Surely I will no more give your corn to be meat for your enemies, and the sons of the stranger shall not drink your wine, for the which you have labored. But they that have gathered it shall eat it, and praise the Lord, and they that have brought it together shall drink it in the courts of my holiness. Go through, go through the gates, prepare ye the way of the people, cast up, cast up the highway, gather out the stones, lift up a standard for the people. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed unto the end of the world, say you to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Now, do you think that the prophets, because this is just a sampling, are ultimately simply concerned with just the prosperity of the city? Is that their ultimate concern? It's just, I, I really have a, I have something for Jerusalem because I grew up there and I just really want it to succeed. Or is their ultimate concern the name of God, the glory of God, the knowledge of God in all the world that happens to be associated with the prosperity of this place? Whatever happens there is significant with God. You've maybe heard the phrase, whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, Right? The opposite is true with Jerusalem. What happens in Jerusalem is for the whole world to see. God makes himself known there, and that's why it's such a spiritual battleground and such a significant thing for Jesus now to be ascending the very steps up to Jerusalem to be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. Christ is now there to triumph over his enemies, to die for our sins, and to change the world there in Jerusalem, the city of God. Let's go back to Matthew 21. Verse 2. As he's approaching this climax, 
Jesus gives his disciples an unexpected order. He says, go over into that city next, next to you as we are coming up to Jerusalem, and you're going to find a mother donkey and its baby. It's young, colt, what a colt is, a baby donkey, and bring it back here. Now, why does Jesus ask for these animals? Is it because Jesus is not capable of, of walking the distance? Is he too tired? Well, Jesus has walked everywhere, all over Galilee, all over uh, Israel. He's certainly physically capable of walking. The reason is not physical, but prophetic. The Lord has need of it. If someone says, hey, what are you doing taking my donkeys? Right? You tell him, God needs it. God needs your donkeys. That should be an honor to you. Interesting that that's a sufficient explanation, right? God needs it. The Lord, God, has a right to use whatever he wants, whenever he wants. God owns all things. God owns you. God owns me. God owns your stuff that you have in your house. And when God needs it, that's a sufficient explanation. You might not even know why he needs it. Sometimes things happen to us and we don't understand, why, God, are you doing this to me? You can never say, though, God, get off my stuff, right? <laughs> because he owns it and he's using it for his purpose. To know that God is in control of all things and works for your good should give you peace if he ever uses your stuff. God knows why. Here it is to fulfill prophecy. Prophecy... When we think about prophecy, or when you think about prophecy, brothers and sisters, do you think about prophecy in, in this way? That God looks into the future, into his magic ball, and he sees what's going to happen in the future, and then he just tells you what he saw. Is that what prophecy is? That God is simply, because he knows the future, tells you what he saw. I would suggest to you that if that's what you think prophecy is, that's not what God, that's not what prophecy is to God. Rather, prophecy to God is when God tells you what is going to happen in the future, and then God does it. God makes it happen. Certainly God has foreknowledge. But God says, your king is going to ride in on a donkey. And it's not simply that, you know, I saw when, I, you know, I didn't really know how Jesus was going to come in, but I saw the future, and I'm just letting you know. But he tells us that's how it's going to be before it happens. And God makes it happen. As we see in verse 4. All this was done that it might be fulfilled. Verse 5 is the prophecy. And what's interesting is that, as often the apostles do this, they take two different prophecies and they combine them together. This is not merely Zechariah 9, verse 9. I would say that the second part of this prophecy is Isaiah or is Zechariah 9, verse 9. It is, um, he comes riding on a donkey meek. But the first part is actually Isaiah 62, which we just read. Isaiah 62, verse 9, which interestingly says, Say to the daughter of Zion, your salvation comes. And in Zechariah 9, it says, your king comes riding on the donkey. And by combining the two prophecies, Matthew is showing us that the king that's coming is in fact 
the salvation. Salvation is the king, and the king is salvation. Jesus Christ is the king of Israel, and Jesus Christ is the salvation of Israel. And these two things are being seen here. Not only is the king coming, just coming home to reign on the throne, but the king here, riding on the donkey, is coming to save them. Jesus is the king of Jerusalem. Right then, now, coming to save. Now, I want you to imagine in your head what Jesus would have looked like coming into Jerusalem like this, okay? When you think of him riding in on a donkey, you have to remember there were two donkeys. There was a mother donkey, and there was a baby donkey. And another gospel tells us that the baby donkey had never been ridden on before. It was small. It was not full-grown. Had no experience. Now, which donkey do you think Jesus was riding on? The mother donkey or the baby donkey? <laughs> What's that? The baby. The Gospels tell us explicitly Jesus was riding on the baby donkey, if you compare all four Gospels together. So you've got to imagine that not only is the king riding in on a donkey, which itself is a humble thing. David and Solomon certainly rode donkeys, but they weren't little donkeys right? They rode donkeys. The donkey is certainly a humble thing. It's in contrast with, say, riding in on a chariot as a conquering military warrior. But riding in on a donkey shows meekness and peace. And riding in on a baby donkey says something really strange, right? This guy's really gentle and really lowly. In fact, he almost looks silly riding in on this donkey. But now I want you to imagine something else that is really odd that's going on. And if you were to look over the wall of Jerusalem and you were to hear all the commotion, and you were to go, whoa, someone big and important's coming around the bend. And you were to go over the wall and look, and you see all the crowds waving palm branches and laying their garments down, which, by the way, waving branches and laying uh, the garments down the road was what they would do in the ancient world as a kingly for a kingly procession. If a king is coming, they would do that. And so like, whoa, a king is coming! Some king, maybe some far eastern king is coming to celebrate the Passover. Or maybe this is the King Messiah. Sure sounds like it by what they're saying. Where is he? <laughs> and the crowds are all cheering, and then finally you look and you see this guy riding on a little baby donkey. <laughs> and he has no special garments on. There's nothing about him that seems great. And he's thronged by the great chanting crowd. Luke tells us, Luke gives us, I think, the greatest description of the... Uh, triumphant entry, but Luke tells us that the crowd is Jesus' disciples. Obviously, Jesus had lots of followers. And Luke tells us they, they were specifically his disciples who were excited about him because they had seen his miracle ministry. And in particular, his raising of Lazarus from the dead. And these people are now believing, they believe that Jesus is the king who's coming to Jerusalem now, and they're excited about what is about to happen. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is what Matthew tells us they're saying. Hosanna to the son of David. Those are messianic 
phrases they're applying to him. John tells us they were saying this, Blessed is the king of Israel who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a pretty bold saying, isn't it? Luke tells us they were saying this, or excuse me, Mark, Blessed be the kingdom of our father David, which comes in the name of the Lord. So there's an anticipation in the crowd that with Jesus' ascent coming up to Jerusalem, the miracle-working one, the one that they are now convinced he's the king. And if you look back in the Gospels, you can see that at many different points they said, this guy's the king, let's make him king right now. These are his followers. They're acknowledging his kingship, and they believe his kingdom is about to appear. The word Hosanna, Hebrew Yasha na means save us now. It's a prayer. It was also used as praise in the sense of salvation belongs to God. Hosanna in the highest. Salvation belongs to heaven. They're praising and praying at this moment that salvation, which is from heaven, is now being realized in Jesus. They are ascribing to him what is to be ascribed to God. These words are taken from Psalm 118. These, interestingly enough, that these words were actually traditionally sung at the festival of the Passover, and, and most festivals of the Jews, these words were sung, usually in anticipation that when the Messiah comes, we'll be saying this and singing this. But now they're actually singing it with an object before them that they're saying, here he is. Blessed is he who's coming in the name of the Lord. And it's always been sung before, but never for someone. They believed God was going to save them right then and now. And brothers and sisters, they were not wrong. How, How do you understand the triumphant entry? Do you just shake your head at them and then, stupid people, they just don't get it. The most important thing to understand about this triumphant entry is that Jesus is wholeheartedly in favor of this procession. There's no sense that Jesus is like beating them off with a stick and saying, back you, (laughs) shut up. (laughs) This is not the time. This is the time. And there never was a time like this Jesus never told them to be quiet. In fact, Jesus rebukes those who tells them to be quiet. Jesus says to the Pharisees in another gospel, they say, Master, silence your disciples. And he says, if, you, if they were silent, the stones would be crying out right now. And as we're going to see, make these children stop saying that you're the son of David. He says, God has perfected praise in young people and children. Jesus is in favor of this procession because Jesus is publicly throwing down the gauntlet and he's presenting himself to Israel as their king and he's coming to save them. That's exactly what he's about to do and they're right. The only problem is is that they are thinking differently than Jesus about what that salvation is about to look like. But he is the king. 
and he is coming to save. He is their salvation. How were they thinking? Well, Jesus was, Jesus was announcing to his disciples that I'm going to be betrayed and crucified. And of course, you know how Peter felt about that. Death was unthinkable. Jesus was saying, I've come to give my life a ransom for many. He just said that. And the Jews are thinking, save us from our oppressors and our enemies, particularly the Romans, our occupiers. Save us and establish for us Zion. Establish for us the promise that God gave to us that he would give us this land and cause us to dwell in safety. Jesus is coming in on a donkey. They're ignoring that. It's like they see a war horse instead of a donkey. They don't see the priestly king. But it's important for us to understand, brothers and sisters, the Jews are not just thinking materially about their city like, say, a pagan would. Look, no pagan would want an occupying force in their city. But the Jews are not as shallow as pagans. They're not just thinking, we don't like the Romans here, Jesus, kick them out. Everything is theological to these Jews. That's why they're saying salvation comes from God. Their understanding is that because we have prepared ourselves, because we are now good, because we are obedient to the law, because we've done the right thing, the blessing is surely now to come. Right? Now certainly us being defeated and occupied is a sign of our sin, but we've been repenting. We've heard John the Baptist. We've heard Jesus. We've heard the Sermon on the Mount. We're now ready to go. Little did they realize their city was about to be destroyed. Psalm 118 goes on to say, immediately after, blessed be he that comes in the name of the Lord, bind the sacrifice to the horns of the altar. The stone that the builders have rejected will be the head of the corner. Christ came to save us because we aren't good, not because we are good. They're thinking the Messiah has come because we're good. And it's time to win. Jesus came to meet our, their need and our need. It is only through true righteousness that life comes. I want to ask you a question. How do you think about this for yourself? Do you feel like you are righteous? Do you feel like you should be saved and have eternal life because you do the right things and you feel like you're worthy of that? I mean, it seems silly when we think about the Jews thinking like this, but it's so common today with individuals. And why shouldn't it be what they were thinking at that time if it's so common today? Or do you understand that you are a sinner and that the only reason you'll have eternal life is because Jesus came to meet your need at the cross? Look at verse 10. What, is the, what does Jerusalem think about this? Matthew tells us they were, they were moved. In the Greek, it means they were shaken. They were troubled. It's an echo of chapter 2, verse 3, when, when Herod in Jerusalem heard that the king was born, the king of the Jews was born. It says they were troubled and shaken. We have a connection between this chapter and the, and the second chapter. The king is coming and they're troubled. They're upset about this. Who is this? That's a crucial question, but it's an agitated question. Who's troubling us? 
One needs to understand that Jerusalem at this time was the stronghold of the Pharisees, the nexus of legalism. And at that time, the city stood up in opposition to Christ and the gospel. As Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 4, Jerusalem that now is, is in bondage with her children. But nonetheless, it is his city, and he's literally their king, and he loves them. And Jesus, it says in Luke, weeps over the city. Luke gives us the most moving description. As Jesus is coming into the city, he's weeping for it because he knows what's going to happen. He knows he's come to save them. He knows that they're going to reject him. He knows that the city is going to be destroyed because of their unrighteousness. And it's sad for him because everyone that is, there's the Jerusalem that doesn't like him and his coming, and there's the disciples who are cheering for them so close but so far. Jesus says in Luke, if you only knew what was for your peace and you didn't know the time of your visitation when I had come to care for you and oversee for your good, he predicts that they'll be destroyed, which literally happened. The opposite of what would have happened had they, of course, welcomed their king and accepted their savior. Now, the first politically correct thing that Jesus does when he gets to Jerusalem is he cleanses the temple. Right? <laughs> Why does Jesus cleanse the temple? He cleanses it because he loves them. He cleanses the temple because the people that he loves, they don't understand. And God chastens those whom he loves, even those who go to hell. God loves, and he does things to try to wake them up. Even his judgments are mercies. And Jesus cleanses the temple to show them, your thinking is wrong. Something is wrong. He's throwing down the gauntlet. The money changers were in the temple because the temple authorities would not accept coins that had heathen markings on them. And so when the pilgrims came from all around the world, they had to to change their money, like you do at an airport if you went to Europe or something. You have to change your money so that you can use the temple shekel, which is acceptable for use in the temple. I don't think Jesus necessarily had a problem with money changing in and of itself. I don't think that would get him upset. But what got him angry was that it was taking place in the temple. You'll remember in John, he says, stop making my father's house a marketplace. It made the religion of Israel commercial. You have all these pilgrims and Gentiles or inhabitants of the city who would come to the temple. And when you come to the temple, basically what you're seeing around you and what you're hearing around you is commerce. Imagine the noisiness of a Middle Eastern money changer, right? Shouting and yelling and exchanging money and saying it's not the right price and all these things. The temple became commercialized, kind of like people argue, complain about Christmas being commercialized. They also sold animals in the temple for sacrifice. And it seems quite practical because you, had, you couldn't just bring any animal to the temple. It had to be ceremonially um, acceptable. So imagine you bring Dolly from the farm and uh, you think it's ceremonially acceptable and then you get to the temple you realize it's not because the priests have to inspect the animals to make sure that it's acceptable. Imagine it says, no, this isn't acceptable. And you, oh, you've got to walk all the way back to the farm and get another one. It's much easier if they have these pre-inspected animals already in the temple, right? Kosher. 
and you just go in and you just buy, buy what you need. The problem is, is it makes the temple commercial. Imagine what it would be like being there and hearing these merchants buying and selling, Middle Eastern merchants buying and selling, bartering, dickering in the temple. What would the Gentiles think if they were to come up to the temple? R.T. France writes, Christ's main point is that the temple was to be a place of unhindered worship and not of commerce. Jesus says in verse 13, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. That's from Isaiah. But the second part is from Jeremiah. You have made it a den of thieves. It's become about money for you. And it's interesting that in Jeremiah, them making the temple a den of thieves is connected with him destroying, with God destroying it, the temple and the people. This is part of their rejection of the law. They're not listening to the law. They're not honoring the law. They're not understanding the law. They're not understanding the point of the temple. They're not seeing their sins. Everything has become commercial or self-righteous. Jesus cleanses the temple the second time. He did so at the beginning of his ministry and at the end, restoring the vision of the law and the purpose of the temple. B.F. Meyer says, Jesus planned this for prime time and maximum exposure. You've got to understand there are millions of people there the city is just overflowing with pilgrims. It was a demonstration calculated to interrupt business as usual and bring the imminence of God's reign abruptly, forcibly to the attention of all. It was a demonstration, a prophetic critique, a fulfillment event, and a sign of the future. He's throwing down the gauntlet and challenging them here I am, your king, and you're doing this all wrong. Now, the priests didn't seem to have a problem with the temple being commercialized, but they did have a problem in verse 15 when they see him healing in the temple and children worshiping Jesus in the temple as the son of David. They talk like they're against sin. That's what Pharisees do. Have you ever met a Pharisee? Pharisees talk like they're against sin, but they actually are not against sin at all. They're pro-false righteousness. If a person was truly against sin, then they would have to confess themselves to be unworthy of judging other people for their sin, right? And if you're walking around judging other people for your sin, pretending that you're a, self that you're a uh, righteous warrior against sin, by your very action, you show that you're a hypocrite. Jesus quotes the psalm. A.B. Bruce says, These prompt and happy citations show how familiar Jesus was with the Old Testament. We see Jesus' high view of Scripture here. Everywhere it's, it is written, it is written, it is written. And this last week is full of Old Testament prophecy. God isn't just saying what, I, what he saw. God in the Old Testament is telling us what he's going to do. And what God is going to do is he's going to save us from our sins. He's telling us what he's going to do. He's giving us the sign so that we can believe because he loves us, because he cares about us. Israel's rejection of God or Jerusalem's rejection of God and God's love for Jerusalem and his love for Israel and his love for his people is an analogy for us to learn from. Because each one of us 
can relate with this. Each one of us can see in ourselves the same story, that God created us for himself, and that all of us have gone astray from God, in old King James language, a whoring from our God. Can anyone here say that they've not gone a whoring from God? Can anyone here say that God created me for himself and I have given him the love and the respect and the honor and the obedience that he deserves? Can anyone here say that God created me for himself but I have, when people look at me, the name of God is blasphemed because of us, because of what we do. People don't see the glory of God in us anymore. We're all like sheep who have gone astray. And what does God do? Give up on us? Throw us away? He weeps for us, and he comes to save those who reject him. Because those, the stone that is rejected is actually the stone that saves. So I want to close by asking you, who do you relate with in this passage? Do you relate with the teaching of the Pharisees or with the teaching of Jesus as we read this passage? Do you understand that Jesus came to save you and that your God came to save you from your sins by giving his life a ransom on the cross and that that's what it's all about? Or do you relate with the Pharisees or do you relate with the crowds around Jesus who truly see him as their king but think that they deserve to be saved now because they're good? Jesus has thrown down the gauntlet, not just for Jerusalem, but for you. He's challenging you. He's forcing your hand. You have to choose. There is no neutrality. You are either saved from your sins or not. You either know God or you don't. You're either trusting in your own righteousness or you're trusting in the grace of God. You're either righteous through putting your faith in Christ or you aren't. How do you understand Hosanna? Who do you ascribe salvation to? And if you were there in Jerusalem, I'm sure if I were there in Jerusalem, I would have probably misunderstood too. But now is we cannot misunderstand, brothers and sisters, and many people today hold palm branches and they throw garments down on the road and they say, Jesus is my king. Jesus is my Lord. Okay, Jesus, save me now. I've done all the right things. And these people are about to be destroyed and they don't even know it. You can't afford to be wrong about Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for loving the sinful world so much that you came into it to save. Help us to see that our hope is in the death of your son. And we thank you that even when we are 
rebellious and stupid. That you love us and that you welcome us. Please help us to understand these things, Lord. And we give you praise and glory for your name is mighty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.